Napoon, why don't you introduce yourself to the the listeners? Because you've been on Stand Up Science before, but this is your first time on Here We Are. That's right. Or did I, we do? Or no, we did a live Here We, we Are. We did a live the first so time you've we did something. been on. Yeah. Right. Both. So you've been on the uh, the podcast before, and then you did Stand Up Science as well. Exactly. So basically, right, right, right. what we have agreed on is I'm pretty big deal. Is what we uh, you know, uh, yeah, <laughs> very very memorable. <laughs> Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Because I think you're on one of like three or four ever live Here We Are. Yeah podcasts and so i forgot that because usually stand-up science i don't record i don't i don't put them out and i forgot right. that you were on one of the few so people can go back and listen to that yeah um, it was so with our people... friend shane shane uh, b miller who is now working in industry and is one of the smartest people i know for sure and nice yeah that uh, shanes are the best aren't they shane, uh, I call, <laughs> that's why i call you sean instead of shane uh, yeah yeah i <laughs> Most people do it just for a simple misunderstanding, but either either way works. So tell people what you do. Yeah. So uh, first of all, thanks for having me on, Shane. Again, it's great to thanks be on. Thanks for being uh, here. Yeah. Um, so in my day job, I'm an assistant professor at DePaul University. Uh, I teach uh, biology and biology-related courses. Uh, I, I've been doing that for a year. Before that, I did my PhD on Alzheimer's disease, and I did two years of postdoc work studying traumatic brain injury. Uh, in uh, in mice, um, we're using them. I should say that specifically. Not that we're worried about traumatic brain injuries in mice, but I was using a mouse model to understand traumatic brain injuries in humans. So um, that's what I've done, and that's what I've been doing. Um, amazing. So I want to talk all about Alzheimer's today. However, this is great. This is speaking of uh, unusual things happening on the Here We Are podcast. Here's something I'm really interested in asking you about: sports. <laughs> That's something that you would that you would very rarely hear come out of my mouth. Yeah. But you're uh, I I love playing sports. I'm on a big pickleball kick right now. I don't, I don't know if you've ever messed around what on is a pickleball, pickleball court. It's uh, it's like kind of a mix between ping pong and tennis. It's on like a, it's on, it's on like a tennis court that's like oh, three quarters exactly of the size. Yeah. Then you have like ping pong paddles yeah. and hit like a wiffle ball. Yeah. And it, it's like tennis for old people. Um, <laughs> and it's it's great. But anyway, the point is, I love I love playing sports, spectator sports. I don't, I just don't get the same um thing out of it um but you you uh do uh you're also on the side do a bit of journalism for soccer yeah. Yeah. right and i saw i just briefly skimmed a couple of your tweets i was gonna be like oh this will be good we'll have like a little break from covid and talk about <laughs> alzheimer's but then this was too interesting i want to hear from a soccer fan who's also um, uh, uh, someone who, who teaches biology. I want to hear your take on live sports and live events. Is it my, is it my understanding that they have been trying to have some soccer yes, games? Yes, you know, you're right. So it's, it's being handled differently across the world. So 
European leagues, uh, so in England, uh, which, which is the most popular league in the world called the Premier League, they've been playing games uh, in behind closed doors, so with no fans in attendance for about a month now. So has the league in Italy. So is the league in Germany. Uh, the top league in the United States called Major League Soccer that has been pl uh, been took all its players down to Florida of all places uh, where there's a complete <laughs> shit show in terms of the pandemic occurring right now. Uh, so all the players are down I, there. I know exactly where I want to head for this <laughs> pandemic. America. Where about in America? Oh, probably the worst part. Probably Florida. the worst part under normal conditions. And, but and not, only definitely. The, not only the worst state, one of the worst parts of the state, which is Orlando. So... Uh, yeah. So it's just ridiculous. And then the the league that my team that I support uh, plays in, which is the second tier league in the United States called the United Soccer League or USL, they have taken the stupidity to another level. They've said, yeah. hey, not, not only are we playing soccer, why don't you bring fans into the stadium? So, so to say that I am absolutely aggravated beyond belief with soccer, uh, especially American soccer right now, is an understatement, which will explain well, why you've seen so many angry tweets from me, Shane. <laughs> and I and I haven't even seen that that many, because I I don't check my Twitter feed that much, but I I do have. Oh, here here's a cool thing for my fans. If you want something, I you say you have angry tweets, and I would I would concede that I've I've sensed a bit of anger and <laughs> and some. Of, but I follow comedian like everyone yeah. else in the world no matter what side of whatever fences or points of view or whatever everyone's way angrier than you are <laughs> not everyone but a lot of people are yeah that's and true. so one of one of the things that i've taken to doing my i've never told my listeners this before i actually have a list if you go onto my twitter i have a list of all of my past podcast guests who are on twitter and you can go follow that list yourself. Oh, nice. And so I check that each day. I find it to be a little more grounded <laughs> and a little better informed than some of the rest of Twitter. So I find it to be quite nice. And then also, they're not scientists aren't hijacked by the same. Not not that not that scientists that are very human can't be. Um, manipulated in ways or, or, you know, catering to their own social groups or worried about what their friends might think about what they say on Twitter or whatever else. But it does feel a little less like, um, you know, once you, once you have like enough followers or whatever on Twitter, I, I feel like those, those people end up being the most biased because they're like right. pandering to their, uh, they they can't give an inch because they have their like audience built, and so that's another thing that I that I like about following all my past guests on Twitter, and it's cool keeping up with you guys. Yeah. But um, but I was wondering how are they? So they're socially distancing in these live in these live games, or great question, Shane. <laughs> so so different I, again, different leagues. I, it, the reason I'm laughing is not because I think the question is silly. I think the question is great yeah. and the yeah. answer is silly. And the fact yeah. that you're asking this and, and the, the answer is not clear cut to me is silly uh, because yeah. different leagues have basically decided to do it different ways. There's a league in, uh, in America called NISA, which is a professional league, small number of teams, soccer league. 
and they've told the leagues, uh, the teams to do whatever the hell they want. It's their decision. So there's no oversight. There's MLS, which Whoa. has... Yeah, it's absolutely bonkers, man. It is absolutely bonkers. There's MLS, again, the comeback uh, to, for your listeners who don't know, the top league in the United States. That has, a, there's a pretty well-defined protocol. But you know what happened, Shane? You'll be surprised by this. When they brought all the players in, two teams had to go home because they had a breakout of cases in their teams. One team from Dallas had what is an unofficial super spreader event because they had 10 or 11 players, maybe more, because they stopped reporting it now, staff and players get, get sick with COVID. So, you know, there are these protocols, but, uh, and, and if you talk to people who defend these leagues, and that's my burden because I have so many followers who are just like, uh, what's the right word here? Fanatics for, for the leagues and will not accept anything said against the leagues. They will say that, oh, the, the protocol is working because those teams have gone home and now we are seeing no COVID-19 cases. And I'm like, it's been a week. Yeah, sure. You may not have seen a case in, in five days, but you had two full teams go home and you're still in Orlando, Florida. So, you know, anyway, that yeah. was a long-winded right. way of answering your question that the answer to your question is everyone's making it up as they go. I mean, it's just... You have to understand, so if a team, uh, not you, a person needs to understand that, like, you know, someone that listens to this podcast, something that I'm just so fascinated by is, is um, you know, the many biases in primes that, that put together yeah. our, our consciousness, that put together our belief system, and I know that there's just natural, listen, I have... I have a science podcast. I know, at least I have a sense of, you know, it's not like I'm sitting around freaking out every day. I'm just like, I'm going to stay put and, you know, like try to get good information out there. And that's that. But, you know, the, the incentive from like, say, a comedian or a club owner standpoint to keep working and in, earn income is so strong that it's going to make you look for evidence exactly. to do that. I mean, I got, I got a, I got a text from a club booker in Texas not too long ago asking me if I wanted to come down, and there was, it was a pretty small part of me, but there was a very small part of me that was like, huh, well, maybe I should ask follow up questions, see like what their procedures are, or like right. what, see how much it would pay, you know, like what, of course. why. Why does how much I'm getting paid influence how a virus works? That's the kind of stuff that people don't, you know, put together when they're making these kinds of decisions. But human human yeah, behavior exactly. is very much influenced by incentives like this. And so when you say, hey, owner of a soccer team who that makes all this money off of ticket sales and concessions, like... We're gonna we're gonna put faith in your judgment about <laughs> whether you think what you think that is best for your fans' well-being and health. Like that just seems absolutely insane to me. And and I, I'm I'm not someone that that is like yeah the government should over. I want to just listen to anything the government has to tell <laughs> me. But I, it would be nice to have. 
it would be nice to have protocols, standard protocols in place. It would be nice to have, um, you know, like I was talking with Jessica Brinkworth, some sort of algorithm or system of like population density plus number of cases plus uh, a number of available hospital right. beds in the event of spread plus the, you know, uh, amount of PPE, like factoring all these. And then here is your level of Risk, opening yeah. Yeah. based on those numbers. What it is not based on is your governor or <laughs> the mayor of your town or, 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 or you know. uh, most importantly, what, uh, some video called Plandemic told you on youtube right so <laughs> yeah th there is this i totally agree with you and there's uh, the, the the phrase that's used by psychologists and neuroscientists is motivated reasoning is basically what you're talking yeah, about yeah it's motivated reasoning that people will make will uh focus on the evidence that agrees with their worldview with with their you know view of the world or their understanding of the world or the understanding of the world that the people they trust believe in right yeah. so and i agree with you i think there needs to be more stronger evidence and stronger regulation to to demonstrate the problems we're facing and and the the things we're up against and there just isn't yeah Ah, well, it's wonderful to get to talk to you in person about this stuff that we've been tweeting at one yeah, another back yes. and forth. Likewise. Um, so let's talk about Alzheimer's because yeah. the, the you know this is such a I I've been going back and forth with how much to even cover COVID. A lot of my episodes have been like COVID adjacent. What is the psychology of why people buy toilet paper or how is this impacting yeah. our sleep or anything else? And then, uh, you know, in addition to that, it, it it's occurred to me ever since I, you know, I just had um this woman, um, uh, Olamide uh, Jarrett on recently, who normally studies HIV and is um, is now having to deal with COVID stuff. And, you know, there's so many aspects of science where the world needs to keep on spinning, much like people are worried about like, well, we still need to have economy. Right. We still need, there's still all of these important aspects of lots of other science and lots of other research that we're going to need to keep in mind and, and remember. So uh, I'm excited to talk about Alzheimer's. I put, uh, I, just an hour ago, I put something out on Facebook and Instagram and I got like a hundred questions from people. So yeah. I know... I know that people are really interested in the subject. Why don't you give us a little Alzheimer's 101? Sure. So Alzheimer's disease is uh, is the most common form of dementia. Uh, it's it's a disease that we've known about for just over a hundred years. It was first discovered by Alois Alzheimer, hence the name Alzheimer's disease. Uh, he was a pathologist, and he found that with these people that were that while they were alive were showing these certain salient behavioral symptoms, such as loss of memory, such as uh, cognitive deficits. When you looked at their brain after they died, he noticed that there were some very particular characteristics in what their brain looked like versus someone that had a normal brain uh, dying mm -hmm. at a similar age, right? So what I'm saying is someone who dies with Alzheimer's at the age of 70 has a very different brain than someone who dies without Alzheimer's at the age of 70. Um, also important to note that a brain of someone who is 20 
without Alzheimer's also looks different than someone whose brain is 70 without Alzheimer's. But that's a totally different area, which is normal, healthy brain aging. But in the mm. pathology side of things, uh, what so what did he notice when he looked at the brain? He noticed there were actually gaps in the brain. And there, the brain was smaller. There were little holes in the brain. It was almost like the brain had been chewed up in some ways. And there were certain specific parts of the brain that looked more chewed up than other parts did. And that's how the field of Alzheimer's sort of came into existence, which is ever since we've been trying to figure out, okay, we, we, we've seen it over and over again. These parts are being chewed up, but why the hell are they being chewed up? And I, there I, are I, It's so just many occurring to me. I was like, I should I should do like a, someone who researches stuffed animals or something just to give someone like a break. Once so I, 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 like, I like that I'm like, I'm going to give you guys all a break from from uh, all, all the all the all pandemic, the pandemic. <laughs> apocalyptic stuff. And like, oh, don't forget, there's other things <laughs> chewing up your brains. <laughs> yeah, just another uplifting podcast from you, Shane. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but anyway, continue. I, you got my attention. Yeah, so since then, we've been trying to figure out the reasons for the brain being chewed up. And Shane, the, the, the part that's of interest and the part that's frustrating overlap here. And that there are, you know, just before I we started recording, I was thinking back to my dissertation and thinking back, well, what were all the hypotheses? And I started to write them down. And I wrote down these in five minutes from the top of my head. So here's Alzheimer's disease. And I counted, I think, 14 hypotheses for Alzheimer's disease. 14 different wow. hypotheses. Now, now, some of these are more well, uh, and I can pull it, I can pull it up again if you want, but some of these, and I can go over them one by one if you want. Yeah, but, yeah, that, that would be, or at least the greatest hits. Yeah, I was going to say, there's some that are more, have more evidence for them and are more largely agreed upon than others, but, and this is not a complete list either. So let me tell you the, the greatest hits. The greatest hits uh, are these, uh, the, the the greatest of all greatest hits are these two peptides called this is like the weirdest radio show ever <laughs> instead of like top 40 <laughs> the worst 14 <laughs> the worst 14 the evil 14 coming uh, in number one <laughs> coming in number most one most likely culprit of alzheimer's we have drum Tau roll protein. please <laughs> so what, a, what is it tau protein so okay. there's, there's this there's this protein uh, in in your uh, it's in all your cells. Okay, it's called tau protein, and normally it plays a role in uh, the normal function of your all your cells, including your neurons. Now, what happens is in Alzheimer's, the shape of this tau protein changes because of some reason, uh, certain reasons. Okay, and when the shape changes, it makes the protein sticky. When the protein becomes sticky, it basically collects together like a big old ball of poop. And this big old ball of tau mm -hmm. poop basically kills your neurons. And that's mm -hmm. what we believe to be the uh, the biggest, I would say one of the two main hypotheses for Alzheimer's disease is tau. Is this the plaque stuff that I've heard about? Very close. So plaque is a different, so this is the tangle stuff you may have heard about, hypophosphorylated okay. tau tangles. The plaque stuff is the second most second biggest hypothesis okay. and the one that i've did most of my research on is called the amyloid beta hypothesis that's the amyloid plaque so uh, uh yes so i've heard of this so it's a, it's a similar thing as tau in the sense that you have this small 
it's only about 40 amino acids long. It's, it's a short part of a much, much bigger protein, and it gets cut out during Alzheimer's disease. Um, and once it gets cut out, again, it starts to stick together because of, uh, the, the way it, uh, because of its structure. It starts to stick together. As it sticks together, it can uh, uh, basically, ver through a variety of different ways, uh, also kill neurons and overwhelm. Uh, and this is the part that our friend Shane B. Miller worked on. Normally, there are these cells called microglia. They're kind of like the white blood cells of your brain. Okay, mm. and they come around and clean up all this nastiness. When you're younger, they work really well. They come along, clean up the bad sticky protein here, bad sticky protein here, and you're all set. As you get older, or when you have Alzheimer's, when you have some genetic factors for Alzheimer's, those little microglia don't work as well anymore. And so this toxic stuff continues to build up, build up, build up, and kills your neuron. Mm. They just, <laughs> they, they just... <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So they're like the dentist or something, getting rid of the plaque or the janitors yeah. or something. Janitors the... is the is the analogy I would use. Yes, exactly. And they 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 retire earlier than the plaque does, basically. They get more they're... like it's more like there's too much trash and they just get overwhelmed. They're like, "Fuck it, I'm ah. out. There's too much of this. I can't work anymore." Or uh, you know, I'm they sick just of stop. This. I'm sick of this life. <laughs> 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 that is all, all of all of the uh, uh, like you gotta you gotta respect the resilience of all of like the dark things in life like the plaque never Amen. gets tired Vi viruses infinitely patient yep. though they're like you guys you guys want to distance and stuff like that oh we'll, we'll, we'll wait a little while we'll hang out. Yeah. I, 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 I bet a few of you won't i bet a few of you are you gonna know. get out there Ebola virus is sitting in some bat somewhere, not worried at all. For 40, 40 years, you don't hear from them, then bam, outbreak 800 people dead, right? So absolutely, these guys, these evil things just don't sit, or de demagogues, another great example of things that disappear and keep coming back in, in, uh, in our lives. So yeah, the, you're absolutely right. These evil things just don't give up, and the, the good side of things eventually gets overwhelmed and uh, bad things happen. It's like entropy or something, but oh, wow, put in yeah. this put in this odd <laughs> like evolutionary. I don't know. <laughs> um, all right, so that's so that's number two. Do you have any other? Are there I any mean, other good ones? I'll tell you. I'll I, tell I you. also want. Yeah. I, I also are there any like? What's the most outsider? I want like some real yeah. oddball ones. Maybe. Well, one. It'd be nice to throw out some just like. Um, uh, um stuff that goes uh, that gets spread around in the general public some misunderstandings <laughs> yeah. if you know any like uh, i uh, so, so there's one that i think and i'll tell you um it was one of the reasons i was drawn to alzheimer's disease and it, it's kind of considered a out of the traditional view of alzheimer's uh, hypothesis and um so, so I'll tell you what it is, and they'll tell you what evidence has it has. So, um, the the when I was in uh, doing my masters, I was a speaker of sport. I was working as a track coach uh, at DePaul University to pay for my masters, and that's so that's the middle to late knots, right? So, podcasting had just become a thing, a more popular thing. Ricky Gervais's podcast had done well, and there were just a handful of podcasts out there. Um, 
so there was this podcast, this neuroscience podcast, this, this gentleman, this scientist, a pathologist called Michael McDonald, who talked about this weird thing that he observed in Alzheimer's disease. So let me tell you what he observed. He observed that people, when he looked at the brains of people who had Alzheimer's disease, of course, after they died, a lot of the brains were positive for signs of Lyme disease infection. So the Lyme disease spirochete infection. And his hypothesis was that it, it's not, not that Lyme disease causes Alzheimer's disease specifically, but his hypothesis was that Alzheimer's disease happens because of these normal infections in our body that then eventually get to our brain and then stay latent in our brain for many, many years and then eventually overwhelm the, the microglia and stuff like that and cause this nasty amyloid beta tau to collect and kill the cells. So that was his hypothesis at the time. And it, to, to say that he was laughed at is an understatement. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was completely almost a, almost a joke in the field. Uh, crazy story. He, he himself uh, got some uh, crazy neurodegenerative disease and died in the, you know, I, I forget what year, but either around 2010, he, he died. So the story kind of went away for a while. Now, we're pretty convinced that the inflammation part in the brain is pretty real, that the Alzheimer's, that Alzheimer's disease has a very strong inflammation component. Whether or not that has anything to do with inflammation from infectious disease is still debated, but at least the second part of what he was saying has, is pretty robust. So that's the one I would say is the furthest out there. And the reason I always think of it is because it's literally the reason I became interested in studying Alzheimer's disease. Uh, it was just so, so provocative as an idea. Uh, and, you know, as a slight tangent, if you'll allow me, because it's pertinent to what we're experiencing right now, uh, Spanish flu. Uh, well, I, I sorry about that. I, I encourage people not to call it the Spanish flu because it's a misnomer and I just did it myself. Uh, the yeah. 1918 pandemic. So the 1918 pandemic, uh, there, there was a strong, uh, there was strong evidence that the 1918 pandemic, which of course is the H1N, first H1N1 pandemic, that the virus actually stayed latent in your, in your brain after calling ence causing encephalitis. And then many, many years later on, people presented with Parkinsonian symptoms, with, uh, with uh, dementia symptoms, etc. So the proof of concept is there. And uh, I, I, the reason I bring that up is I still think there's some validity to, to some of this uh, about the fact, uh, about the idea that these viruses could be playing, these infectious agents could be playing a part in later oh, on neurodegeneration. Oh, man. Because Jessica kind of mentioned that that there's been some evidence of, of even asymptomatic people yes. already she just a few that. months later having some neurologic issues. I thought because it was like so much information and such a long conversation, I was kind of the way I was piecing it together afterwards. I thought this was maybe like connected to the blood clotting that sometimes happens in response so shane it could be but what i'll tell you and this actually this is a perfect area to talk about because it ties in with both alzheimer's and covid19 uh, in fact yeah. my summer one of my summer research students this summer is working on this protein so the protein that covid uh, the virus causing covid sars covid 2 uses to get inside the cell the doorway into the cell is called ace2 okay it's a, it's a protein that sits on top of your cells 
this protein is very highly expressed in your in your upper respiratory region, which is why you know the first symptoms are coughing, loss of uh, anosmia, loss of smell, etc., uh, pneumonia. But this protein is expressed everywhere, including in your brain. In fact, on a, a role that this protein plays that uh, is underappreciated is that it cleans up, it cuts out amyloid beta. So ACE2, which is, stands for angiotensin cleaving enzyme, is an enzyme that can break down amyloid beta. <laughs> so it's, it's kind of crazy how, how it's all kind of connected in a weird way. And the amyloid beta is the janitors? No, 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 sorry. So the no, amyloid beta plaque. is the trash. Yeah, it's that's what causes the, the plaque. Yeah, it causes the... So the idea wait, is that... Wait, so it... the ACE breaks down the... So, wait, wait. So that's yeah, yeah. potentially helping the situation? So in premise, if you have a high expression of ACE2 in your brain, you would have less amyloid beta, less trash. In premise. What okay. I should... Again, I should give you uh, the broader context. It is one of many what we call amyloid beta degrading enzymes and it may or may not play as big a role as another enzyme called neprilysin which is not related in any way to to uh a covid so so the reason i bring that up is ace2 is expressed on the surface of neurons therefore the virus can get into the neurons therefore the virus can proliferate inside the neurons and then kill the neurons when it breaks out breaks out. Oh, Jesus. Come yeah. on, man. <laughs> uh, hey, I, I promised you an uplifting pod, right? So we're just keeping that going. <laughs> I mean, I just keep on getting more bad news. <laughs> because when I heard that, because I was just on a, well, now I need to like retract everything. I was just on a popular, I was on Duncan Trussell's podcast. And yeah. I was like, I, I have no idea why there would be a neural, like I didn't. I didn't get into it enough why there would be a neurologic issue. And now that's, I was, I was wish, I did say that I was only wish thinking when I said that was delayed, uh, related to clots, because I would think that would be the good news. That would be something that would be more manageable. Correct. If that were, well, if well, that were to, something that were. In your defense, first of all, what I'm saying is uh, ev not evidence-based in clinical trials, evidence-based right. in like cells sitting in dishes, right? So, yeah, yeah. So in your defense, what you said isn't inaccurate. It's just that we just don't know enough about this virus. Yeah, yeah. Um, just theoretically, these are these are the issues that could potentially right. th that that you want to look out for. But your what Jessica said and what you're talking about about the thrombosis side of this is very important because if you mm. have blood clots, you know you're going to have stroke and ischemic events. You're going to yeah. have swelling in the brain. So all of those things are completely at play. Uh, what I'm talking about is, <laughs> is more scary. Not, no, it's not more It's also scary because it, yeah. it means you can have much longer effects. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I, I, how, how long? So, and, and you, you can also do some of the other greatest hits or whatever too, if it's, if it's relevant or if you yeah. just feel like it, it doesn't matter to me, but I, I definitely want to get to um one soccer, yeah. what are <laughs> soccer can we just talk about soccer so, um i i want to talk about uh, connect these two things yeah. what how what happens when a person gets alzheimer's and and what i'm really interested in is when does the alzheimer's process start because mm -hmm. it's it's uh, my limited understanding 
I don't know if this is from having you on before. I, I don't know where I'm pulling this information from. Um, but but it's kind of like a, a buildup long before you would start seeing the real symptoms occurring years, maybe even decades before you, you would see the symptoms of that that we associate with like um uh putting um putting keys under the sink or something like that like just misplacing thing it, that that we would normally right is yeah, it you're spot or, or is is there or is there more of a gradual build up or does it just is there a tipping point that's a or good both. question, and 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 uh, the so so let's start with the beginning. I think you said what what is what happens when you get Alzheimer's, or maybe you're talking. Did you ask about the symptoms? Yeah. Or? Well, what I do, what I like to do is I like to ask five questions <laughs> um, at the same time, this is, blend them all together, kind of sound like. Like I sort of know what I'm talking about, but don't really know what I'm talking about, and then I go there. Have have at that one. Shit. Uh, in however, your, in however your defense, you want to manage that clusterfuck that your, I just threw at you. In your defense, every scientist I talk to does this. Okay, so so every scientist starts with one question, and then the question keeps getting bigger because what scientists tend to do is we'll start, and you know, I'm already, I'm literally doing this right now. I'll start answering a question, and then I'll like draw it back a little bit and go off on a slight yeah. tangent but then de reel back what i said right and then all of a sudden this question becomes because you yeah. have to go your <laughs> yeah. brain has to go like well on the other hand but on yeah, the other exactly. so like the choose your own adventures that you open up exactly is, exactly yeah. uh, so so um speaking of choose your adventures i'm going to choose the adventure of how you know uh, how alzheimer's actually shows up in your brain right so okay. that's, that's the adventure i'll go with so what we know is, uh, and I say no as in not conclusively no, because remember that the problem we have with Alzheimer's is we can't really study it too well in someone who's alive, right? We can yeah. only really study it in the brain after someone dies because of the, the imaging, just the neuroimaging for Alzheimer's. We have a couple of compounds are, are good, but it's just not that great right now to be perfectly honest. So what we think is happening is that Alzheimer's is starting in a part of your brain that is is close, to, is called the hippocampus. And you we may have talked about this on a previous podcast, you may know about it also, but uh, hippocampus yeah. basically, go ahead. Oh, let's okay. just assume that we don't know, but it, it's it's real, It's a major player in memory. Exactly, that, that's all that needs to be said. So it, it's a part of uh, a really important part of your brain that is a really important player in memory and uh, through some processes that we don't need to get into and different kinds of memory also, by the way. So what we think of happening is that it starts in this region around the hippocampus called the entorhinal cortex. And from there, it starts to spread all over the brain. So mm. the reason that's important is that's why Alzheimer's manifests the way it does. Because the region that uh, the hippocampus and entorhinal cortex are important to are short-term memory. So we start to see effects in short-term memory in, in some processing, etc. Then as it spreads through the brain, uh, it, it has some different, uh, different manifestations. And the reason that's important, Shane, is that's how we differentiate someone that has Alzheimer's from, say, someone that has frontotemporal dementia 
or prion disease or Parkinson's disease, because in those people, in those individuals, the symptoms go in different orders. So maybe in the case of Parkinson's, you have a motor symptom first and the memory will come much, much later, if at all. In the Mm. case of frontotemporal dementia, uh, uh, because the frontal lobe is so important to your personality, personality changes will occur before you start to lose memory, right? So you'll see issues with suicidality or depression or gambling, etc. So so that's why that that's important. Bet MGM welcomes you with a special offer on the NBA. Simply place a $10 money line wager on today's game. If either team hits a three-pointer, you'll win $200 in free bets regardless of your wager's outcome. Just use bonus code CHAMPION200 when you make your bet. Bet MGM is proud to be an authorized gaming partner of the NBA, and there's endless ways to make it rain with the king of sportsbooks. Download the app or go to betmgm.com and use bonus code CHAMPION200 to win $200 in free bets if a three-pointer is made in today's game. Visit betmgm.com for terms and conditions. 21 years of age or older to wager. Washington, D.C. and Virginia only. New customer offer. All promotions are subject to qualification and eligibility requirements. Rewards issued as non-withdrawable free bets or site credit. Free bets expire seven days from issuance. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-522-4700. Huh. You, I, thought, I thought you were going to ask I, I mean, I kind of love that one. Not I don't... Uh, but I mean... I don't love it, but it, of, the, of the of of the neural degenerative uh, experiences that I will no doubt have uh, because I I will I'm cursed. Why do with, you say that? I, I, because I, I my all my family lives a super long time, and but unlike the rest of my family, so I know I'm going to live long. But unlike the rest of my family, I have like a lot of impulse control issues and like uh substance abuse issues and things like that but, that that, will... but shane that doesn't necessarily mean anything because the the thing that happens with these diseases is it's it's a change from baseline so if your baseline is the things you're describing you know that doesn't necessarily mean that it increases you at a higher risk to my knowledge there is no increased risk from substance abuse for alzheimer's disease ah. there's increased risk for uh things like head injury right so if yeah. you've had many concussions um, which I've had in my life. So I'm probably at a higher risk for near degenerative disease than, than you are. So, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't worry about it. Uh, okay. You. Well, I like the, I mean, the, the one uplifting, that causes uplifting, that is uplifting. I mean, <laughs> what I, the one that sounds the best is the, like on paper is the personality change. Like if someone uh, gave you a choice, they're like, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take your motor skills or we're going to take your memory, or we're going to change your personality. I'd be like, ooh, I'll be a new person for a little <laughs> while. Does it Does it ever go like a good way? Does, any, does anyone ever get that one and they like start being super nice no. to everyone? Like, Unfortunately, like, no. That's such, a, <laughs> that's such a good question. And I, I you know, I'll why? tell you. Why? Why yeah, doesn't it? Do- I'm, I'm thinking why. And that's such a good question. And I, I'll tell you my hypothesis. And, and like, I, like you get a really good sense of humor. I'll, you've, you've been like real funny. uptight your whole life. Yeah. So I'll tell you. So the honest answer is I, I don't know for sure. This is out of my area of expertise, but I can tell you what I think is happening. So the frontal lobe is the part of, the, of, your, of your brain that, um, and you know, people have described this and um, it's not an original thought in any way. It's like the brake, right? So your your brain is telling you to just 
chase after every impulse, right? Basically go after yeah. everything, all these bad ideas. And the frontal cortex, which develops over, you know, your adolescence into when you're an adult, is the break that tells you, okay, mm -hmm. you know what, maybe you don't want that's 20th hit of that of that doobie, right? Or you don't want to be, you know, shooting up this drug, or you don't want to be acting on this impulse to call this person a motherfucker, even though they are one, right? So when the frontal cortex stops working, suddenly that break goes away, right? So now you're yeah. going to indulge in all those impulses and call that person an MF or when previously you just like passive aggressively subtweet them, right? So all of a sudden yeah. you you probably are becoming more of an asshole because you're taking the break yeah. off. But again, I so right this now I'm I'm forty. I I have my my like prefrontals and the in the prime of my life right now i'm only having 22 hits of weed and then subtweeting people but but this is as good as it's gonna get yeah. for most of us <laughs> right for most of us yeah oh man to to look at my twitter feed and be like oh i'm my best self right now that is that's troubling but Shane, your t again, your Twitter feed is way better than mine. So again, I I'm the one at risk here. <laughs> um, so Alzheimer's memory goes before things like motor function. Yeah, usually. much, much, much before. Uh, so the motor function part of it comes, uh, if at all, in Alzheimer's. Uh, some Alzheimer's won't have any motor function because the motor uh, basal ganglia is not affected. For example, or the cerebellum. The cerebellum, which is a part that allows us to kind of keep all our balance is one of the parts that's least affected by Alzheimer's. So in the case of Alzheimer's, the motor part is very rare, if at all. Um, but the memory part, the cognitive decline, uh, depression, loss of sleep, which is a salient, mm. uh, salient, uh, um, Oh symptom. no, loss of <laughs> sleep. So that's first off, way, sleeps, sleeps about, my favorite thing about life Same. is when I get to shut down the whole life thing for eight hours uh, and then bits throughout the day. Um, <laughs> I, I like the part when I black out existence the most. Um, but, but, but I, I, um, isn't sleep a major player in in boosting these little janitors running around yes. your brain? And so not only oh man, so the janitors are given up, and then you're losing sleep to help out the janitors and let them do their because it's is it is it that sleep is. Maybe I should stop saying janitors. What are they? No, it's, it's good. What are they microglia, microglia. Uh, okay, so so are, is it is it that sleep is like creating more microglia, or is it that it's allowing them the opportunity to do their job? Great question. Both? Great question. So I'll back up just a little bit. So uh, we don't know what causes the first hit. We don't know where the sleep it leads to increase Alzheimer's. Alzheimer's leads to uh, reduced sleep, okay? Mm -hmm. uh, what we do know is that there's a feed-forward loop in the sense that people who have Alzheimer's have sleep deprivation, okay? Then Again, the these, these feed-forward loops, they're never... They're the it sounds so good. It's like, <laughs> like you think about technology. It's like, well, the next iPhone is going to be even better than this one. Not so with these feed-forward no. They, this iteration is not good. It, it, yeah, absolutely. That That's absolutely right. Usually when scientists say feed forward or positive feedback, they're talking about 
So this, this is something that happens with my students, by the way. When I'm explaining positive feedback, I'm like, don't focus on the word positive. It yeah. doesn't necessarily mean a good thing. So yeah. uh, I, I totally get that. So, so what's happening, what we think is, and by the way, this is relying on research that is about five years old, just five years old. In, 2000, mm. in around 2014, 15, I was at the Society for Neuroscience Conference and a, a professor, uh, Professor Nettergaard, uh, I'm forgetting her, her first name in this moment, but she gave a symposium where she talked about this completely new diff- new thing, what she called the glymphatic system. And I'll explain what that is in a second. So you may have heard of the lymphatic system, the lymph system that clears the nas, you know, your lymph, your tonsils are part of the lymphatic system. Yep. They're basically clearing stuff, stuff that's getting in your brain, or in your body, sorry. So she basically came up with the term called the glymphatic system, which created, a, which suggested that there's something like that inside your, just, but just for your brain. Because if you remember, the brain is kind of immune, is, is shut off from the rest of the body because of this thing, this thing called the blood brain barrier. So what she's saying is this glymphatic system, which microglia are a big part of, comes alive when you sleep. And what it does is it, those microglia go from, going back to our janitor uh, uh, analogy, during the day, think of the janitors just sitting in the janitorial offices. They're just sitting there, you know, watching TV, doing nothing. At night, all of a sudden they get in their trucks, they travel to wherever your trash is, they pick it up and take it back. That's what happens when you're sleeping. So, uh, and that becomes activated because of, one of the reasons is because of the glymphatic system. But anyway, the, the point is that when you sleep, these microglia, these janitors, switch to what is called an active form and they start to clean up all the nasty a beta and uh, tau tangles and when you don't sleep enough what we believe is happening is that they can't do their job as well so they're also working on the tangles oh yeah 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 these Gosh, guys these i love guys are, these little bodies the, the busy bodies they're the best they're they're they are absolute heroes and they are uh, they're cousins of the white blood cells which without which you know we would everyone would die all the time, right? Because the white blood cells, whenever a <laughs> virus gets into your body, the white blood cells are the ones that attack it. The microglia yeah. are, are come from the same lineage and they do a, serve a similar function in the brain. Hmm. That's amazing. How do we get more of these suckers? So that's a good question. I don't know. I mean, I, I'm wondering, so they come from a lineage that of a, what we call progenitor cells. Progenitor just means that it can be, it can form many different things, right? And I'm trying to remember if there are active progenitors for microglia in the brain, and I cannot remember whether they are there or not. What what about uh, what about neuroplasticity? And yeah. I I know you know uh, a a kid maybe gets um um some part of their brain knocked out that would serve seizure some function and 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 that function ends up you know recruiting other parts of the brain and right. and can retain um full function we we lose a bit seemingly lo- lose a bit of of uh some of this neuroplasticity but it doesn't it is it that we lose the ability for neuroplasticity as we age, or is it that we just tend to? Is it that the habits of of the adult of of adults tend to 
just end up being like repetitive over time or is it both of the, those things um, creating a forward loop? Um, <laughs> well done, well done, Shane. Uh, I, I would think it's probably more of just the age thing than the behavior, but I don't know. Um, so the age, um, so neuroplasticity as measured at the cellular level is basically something we call long-term potentiation. The ability to, for two neurons to communicate uh, either stronger or to make connections that weren't previously there. So I think what's happening in aging is that we have less neuroplasticity because first of all, neurons are have already made a ton of connections already. So they, it's almost like their ability to, you know, they did, it's like, it's like when we were younger, we can make friends a lot easier, right? And as we get, this is definitely true of me. You made friends when you were younger? <laughs> I'm just, just starting to learn. No, see, it's the reverse with me. I, I made tons of friends when I was younger. And, and now, now no one likes you. Now no one likes me and more, not more importantly, <laughs> as importantly, I don't like anyone. Right. So, uh, it's, it's this, uh, it's this, uh, it's a feed forward loop, which results in me not having any friends these days. <laughs> well, it's, it's pretty efficient. Once you have, once you have these, um, this wiring in, yeah. uh, well, once you have, sorry, these connections yeah. made, wiring is, wiring the, is right. it's there's, there's these, uh, there's these efficiencies where yeah. we, we don't want to have to relearn every single thing in life. But I, I guess what I was getting at is say say you're losing some of the janitors yeah how how much can just forming new so so if they're trying to scrub away plaque and and um untangle things that are happening in connections that are already formed how much does creating new connections how how much can that offset some of the alzheimer's issues so so i'm going to answer this in a slightly different way so no, 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 uh-uh, not on my, this is my show, buddy. <laughs> You'll answer it in the way the I, way I asked you. you. <laughs> What's crazy is, the, you know, you asked me a great pointed question and instead of answering you the, with the pointed answer, <laughs> I'm going it's off fine. on a tangent. I have no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> so let's look at stroke, right? So we know that uh, when people have a stroke, often they lose the ability to talk, right? If, especially if there's a... Um, I want to make this make sure I get this right. A left hemispheric stroke, you have the Broca's area, which will often result in loss of speech. Um, now, what we know is that, especially in people, in women, especially in women in, in their 50s, 60s, they will actually recover that speech over mm -hmm. time, right? So there is some neuroplasticity in the aging brain, in the normal aging brain. What's happening in Alzheimer's is not only are you losing the ability to make more connections, you're also losing neurons, right? So you're just going to have less neurons functioning the way they're supposed to be functioning. Mm. Either they're going to die or they're going to stop behaving or they're going to stop doing the things that normal neurons do. So it's kind of a double whammy, which makes neuroplasticity uh, very difficult uh, in, in Alzheimer's. And, you know, the kicker, I think you, uh, we talked about this when I was on the first Here We Go with you and uh, Shane number two. Neurons don't divide, right? So once a neuron is gone, unlike your skin cells, if you have a big cut in your skin, other skin cells will kind of close the gap. Once a neuron is gone, it's gone, right? Mm -hmm. Since neurons don't have the ability to divide, there won't be other neurons filling in that niche 
specifically unless you can make other connection hmm but ultimately like kind of connections are the name of the game Correct. And, right more but more I, than more than more than cuz there's a lot of talk of uh, uh, amongst kind of you know the general public or when you're growing up you you hear of these brain cells and like right. uh, careful or you'll burn your brain cells or or this person must have a lot of brain cells or a big <laughs> brain or whatever and right. it, and it's it's less about like the number of cells or size although in, although important you don't want your you don't want to be losing brain cells but no. it but it 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 seems that that ultimately connections are kind of the major player absolutely and there but how could do you... maybe be some flexibility there could there could be and that you know it, it just tell me with, something with, that i want to hear <laughs> damn it with with, with neurodegeneration <laughs> the, the problem is that you know it doesn't happen overnight right neurodegeneration is not like a car crash or it's not like a you know like a stroke that you go from having perfect speech an hour later you cannot say a single word right that's a mm -hmm. that's a severe event in neurodegeneration, it's happening over time. So what I, I guess what I'm saying is that, yeah, you may lose a neuron and another neuron makes a connection with another neuron in that moment and you're okay. So you don't notice the deficit. But as you go a long time, eventually you're just going to run out of neurons to make up for that neuro, any neuroplasticity that actually exists. So over mm -hmm. time in neurodegeneration, you're still going like this. Whereas if you have a normal brain and you have a stroke, you have enough neurons to compensate for the loss of the lost neurons. Does that make mm. sense? Yeah, right? yeah. It's just the, the problem, I guess, to summarize, the problem is that, yes, there may be some, some compensation that's happening, but eventually you're just going to run out of hardware to allow for more compensatory behavior hmm. or plasticity. Oh man, we're all just we're all just compensating for things. Are are we just over, spend a lifetime of cases, trying to compensate? <laughs> in case, in some cases, overcompensating. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so here's hopefully an interesting question. Yeah. I was just listening back to um I I I've been active on Instagram for the first time since since the pandemic and. I've been I've been making like highlights of this show and then we have some old audio clips. I was just listening back to one. I hope her name was Allison Coffin. Um but I was reminded of this because it's just something that stuck with me. Um she talks about um hair cells in mm. in ears, ears for yeah. for hearing. Uh, this hair cells is kind of like a misleading they're not hairs they're no they're cilia they're, yeah uh, yeah and um and in fish they regenerate human human hair cells when they're damaged they aren't coming back you're losing your hearing in fish hair cells they're regenerating the idea is is well, what are they doing? Is there a way that you can maybe get human hair cells to regenerate? Would there be something you could do later on? And and my forty questions for you are: <laughs> um, <laughs> Are there any animals that uh, where like their neurons behave, or or like their janitors operate a little differently? That's just like 
close but adjacent to ours that that we could learn things from um or or what are what are some of the best animal models in learning this for the the closest parallel for, for humans and also just how um it, could could there yeah, let's start with there, and then I'll get to the next 38 questions that I have. That are <laughs> so, so uh, animal models. This is a huge problem, huge, as some would say, problem in the, in the field uh, of neurodegeneration. Um, the reason is that the human brain is just freaking amazing, cool, and unique. The only thing that's really similar in terms of structure brain regions development is you know our, our close primate cousins but obviously as you might imagine uh there are ethical considerations to doing uh reductionist single question based research in animals as beautiful amazing intelligent as uh primates uh, as our primate cousins such as orangutans chimpanzees rhesus monkeys etc macaques etc so that's the problem. They're the best one. The one that is most, and there are many, many animal models used for many different reasons. The one that's used the most, Shane, is the mouse. And there are reasons for that, uh, you know, have to do with cost, the fact that you can have many, many generations, so you can study different kinds of effects. Uh, you can, you know, have 1,500 of them in a room that isn't too much bigger than my bedroom right now, okay? Mm -hmm. uh maybe not 1500 but a thousand uh, and also oh i like that you were able to very quickly estimate the number of ra ra of rats that you could <laughs> that you could house in your room if your room was a laboratory you you're like 1500 oh no let, let me take a look around the dimension yeah this is about a thousand i i ah. like the idea of you <laughs> measuring space well, just in you. everyday life based on how many rats could be housed how how far is how Not, how far is your house from the gas station on the corner i would say it's it's roughly 40,000 rat cages away well i should clarify not rats rats are bigger so it would be a oh, lot less mice. rats how dare you shane show the respect I, that oh, gosh <laughs> well the I reason made, by i the just way, made a real fool out of myself yeah this is you should probably shut down the podcast now. You, you, you will not uh, you're it's gonna over get podcast over you're gonna get canceled on twitter the rat and they literally are rat twitter people uh so uh first of all the reason i thought of that is because i have you know my, when i did tbi research i had my own set of one whole shelf of mice and I quickly mm. calculated how many mice I had on one rack, and the room was about as big as my bedroom. And we had just a little bit over a thousand mice in that room. So that's why I, I, I knew what I did. But <laughs> that is that is hilarious. Um, rats, by the way, it would be maybe a hundred in this <laughs> size room. You just, know, just, so you know, know. just so you know. Uh, <laughs> um, so the reason that another reason that they're used along with the cost and the fact that you can work with so many of them is that we have been able to insert human genes into the mouse genome and mm. see the effects that expression of that human gene will have on a mouse behavior and mouse pathology uh, so for example in the, in the alzheimer's field um, if you if you want to ask the question does gene x lead to alzheimer's disease 
right? Whatever gene X is, pick a, pick a gene of choice. It, with humans, you can't do that, right? You may, if you're lucky, you may run into a person that has a knockout of that gene and see whether, they, whether or not they have Alzheimer's disease, but that's an N of one. In mice, you can breed a whole, you can insert that gene, knock it out based on some uh, molecular techniques, and then look at the behavior and the pathology in that mouse. Sounds like a great concept, right, Shane? But as you might imagine, not great uh, because the, the mouse brain is very different than the human brain, both in structure, the way it looks. If you look at a human brain, it has these beautiful grooves in uh, to increase surface area. Mm -hmm. A mouse brain, perfectly smooth. There are no these no grooves that we call sulci. I, so, I like that uh, because the, the grooves are kind of how we pack so much brain mm -hmm. into our heads, right? So mice are yeah. just like, yeah, we don't even, no thanks. Uh, that, this is this is this is all the space. I don't even really. I'm not even using half the space for my brain. <laughs> there, you know, there's <laughs> just there's a some, nice smooth brain. It'll be fine. There, there was a recent uh, movie in the mouse world that talked about how they only use five percent of their brains. Yes. <laughs> um, so, so you know, the with the mice brains are so different. I'll give you a proof of concept of that. Okay. Yeah. When I did traumatic brain injury research, my my research looked at the impact of basically hitting the mouse brain with essentially the equivalent of a piston. So imagine if I, if I could take off your skull and take a big old uh, I don't know hammer, big old mm -hmm. hammer and smash the side of your brain with it. Okay, it would mm -hmm. almost definitely. In fact, let me go out on a limb here and say it would kill you for sure. Right. Yeah. A mouse. Not only does it recover, three, four, five, six hours later, it looks like nothing happened to it. What? Yep. What are it's these insane. jello brained little things? It, so it is what's insane. So th th I, uh, we can go into why if you want, but I guess I was just, uh, which will take us down another group, you know, huge rabbit hole. Uh, what I want. <laughs> that, is, that, is this like a little trick that I can do at home? Just flick a, a, a mouse real hard and people will be like, you're a monster. And then I can be like, wait for it. He's back. <laughs> well, if you hit the side of a, a mouse's head like that, nothing is going to happen. Trust me, nothing is going to happen because people study this. People study what are concussive hits in mice, uh, mm -hmm. which is basically what you're talking about, like hit the side of the head of an intact mouse. What I was doing was I was drilling a hole in the skull of the sure. mouse, or craniectomy is <laughs> sure. what we call it, and then hitting I, the brain. And even so, the mice were fine most of them wow we're getting it's a insane. sense of why you can't do this with primates too because this yes. is already there's already listeners like oh this is yeah we don't like to hear about that part of we know it's happening but we yep. we like to pretend like, like this is the factory happening. farming the steak that i'm eating on my plate and i have this detached i don't need to i don't need to think about it but this is yep. the reality and this is but but if we, if we know this is happening with primates but you're not able to house as much anyway people would this immediately not, yeah, be exactly no 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 one is doing this kind of research with primates for good reasons and i have uh, you know i just taught a course on the ethics of research and i'm reckoning with the fact that i did you know a lot of these surgeries with mice and what did i get out of it was it worth it and there are significant ethical issues uh with this kind of research for sure yeah but that, i don't know unless yeah i, I mean <laughs> it's, it's kind of, uh, it is like uh, you know Har Harlow's uh, 
monkeys or whatever uh, the the cloth mother um oh yeah yeah yeah, stuff yeah of, uh, the, 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 that, the 70s that, yeah yeah the, psych which, the psychology experiment yeah there there was simply no way to know that the damage that they were inflicting on primates right. without running the tests and testing it which in hindsight was like oh we've been monsters but they didn't yeah. know until running the test which then helped help other primates in the future for future studies yeah. when it was before that we were just oblivious to the idea that anything bad was was happening yeah. just like now like you didn't know they were jello until you <laughs> what you, you gotta you, you gotta you gotta drill in there and poke it a few times and then watch it recover <laughs> to be like oh i guess you can just do that and it's okay yeah, it's it's crazy how different their brains are. So, so animal model. Uh, come back to our original question. Right. Yeah, the, the animal model portion of the Alzheimer's field is a huge problem because we don't have any good models, and it has led us down many, many different paths. And to summarize, there's actually none of, no no real other organism develops Alzheimer's other than us, which mm -hmm. comes back to the question of is there something unique about our brains that is leading us to have Alzheimer's-like pathology. Is there anything unique about our diet <laughs> that might be leading us to have uh, things that, that even either, even um, humans in other cultures or, or perhaps, it, it, is it something that, it, I mean, the Alzheimer's, that, that wouldn't be some, it doesn't like impact like the grooves in the skull. It's, it's nothing that you could, you, you could, do from like a archaeologist could be able to see like ancestors. the brain just no. doesn't survive you know yeah, the yeah. brain is one of the first things that's gonna degrade what, what about like hunter-gatherer or or people in like um uh you know just just uh, uh, that have a much different diet than us is there yeah so there's 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 research so that's one one more of these hypotheses i think i have it on here somewhere let me show you unhealthy diet right there so that's one of the hypotheses. So there's there's a uh, there are two pieces of evidence for the hypothesis. First of all, there's evidence of the uh, recent evidence looking at the gut brain microbiome. Uh, the sorry, the gut microbiome affecting brain. Okay, um, there was research that suggested that a high fatty diet uh, given to mice. Again, going back to mice, high fat fatty. Uh, sorry, mice raised on a high fatty diet had a higher amount of amyloid beta in their brain and performed worse on uh, memory tests okay so um, there is evidence suggesting that there's an interplay there whether or not there's evidence in humans on the gut brain axis there is probably more unclear but in terms of the human side of the data there have been a number of studies that have looked at uh, diet in different kinds of populations so there's evidence suggesting that a Mediterranean diet, for example, which has garlic and, uh, you know, less fatty cheese and, and fatty materials and lower amounts of uh, cholesterol having foods, it has a better outcome for Alzheimer's disease. Um, there was a study that looked at, um, wow, it's been so long since I read this. I think it was people of Chinese origin living in America versus people living who grew up in China. And the people and the population of so the idea being both g populations are similar genetically, but the environment is different. And the people living in a, the Chinese individuals living in America 
at a higher rate of Alzheimer's than the ones living back home. Now, that doesn't show definitively that it's diet. It could be a variety of factors in the environment, but it does seem to suggest that may be playing a factor, play, maybe playing a role. Hmm. Okay, well, let's get to... Um... Oh, someone's wondering about lion's mane. Have you ever heard of lion's mane mushrooms for for reducing conditions that contribute to Alzheimer's? I, this is like two people have claimed this would be good to address because one, so not only do I have a science crowd, but I tend to, I, because of my right. psychedelic stuff, I tend to have people that are, uh, that have some, that factor into the more naturalistic and then alternative um, you know, so the I've never heard of this. I... I'm actually uh, looking it up as we speak. Um, I have not heard anything about the lion's we'll, we'll mane. We'll just say we'll just say we don't know. How about yeah, that? I don't know. Sorry. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, it's fine. So, can I uh, follow up with one thing? Often, yeah, when when there's evidence, and I use that in quote for a lot of these things, they don't tend to be evidence in humans. They tend to be evidence in very simple studies. And I often encourage my, so my students ask me about stuff like this all the time. And I tell them, Hey, it's okay that, you know, it's okay to you that you have some evidence in like in some animal model even, but until we have evidence in humans, we cannot say that that's a trusted treatment or preventative against Alzheimer's disease. Does that make sense? So, right. Yeah. Okay. That's all. Um, okay. So. Someone's wondering about lithium. Does lithium have some role in preventing or, or treating so, Alzheimer's? So lithium is an interesting one. My the, the lab I did research in for my PhD, we actually published a paper looking at the role lithium plays uh, indirectly with Alzheimer's disease and uh, bipolar uh, disorder. Um, so lithium, as you, uh, I think we talked about lithium a little bit uh, when we were recording together last time. But lithium kind of is a pretty dirty drug in the sense that it has all kinds of effects, all kinds of indirect effects. And there's some suggestion that lithium may have a neuroprotective role via these things called microRNA. But again, that is not definitive science. So at this moment, the consensus on lithium is maybe at best. Hmm. Um. Oh, here's one. This one was made just for you. It's from Perfect. Instagram. Um, does playing football in high school or multiple head traumas predispose you to Alzheimer's? Multiple head traumas, yes. It does predispose. It's an increased risk for Alzheimer's disease uh, and other neurodegenerative diseases such as CTE or chronic traumatic encephalopathy. Um, there was a recent research done a recent study done by Dr. Anne McKee about two years ago at the Harvard Biobank. And she showed that 96% of the brains that were donated to her uh, of football players, 96% showed CTE. Whoa. Now, but here's the context. We have to remember there is a self-selection bias here because the people who are more likely to, the football players more likely to donate their brains to science are the ones that are experiencing that, CTE symptoms right, in their lives, to, right? They want people to know what, what happened. What's wrong, exactly. So there's mm -hmm. a self-selection bias. So yes, uh, higher, um, uh, the, the original question, multiple brain injuries, 
during uh, lifetime is a is a risk factor for Alzheimer's disease, CTE, Parkinson's disease, and in some cases even multiple sclerosis. So you mentioned this great study with um, with Chinese people in different uh, areas with different diets having an impact. But how how much of um, of a genetic influence is there in terms of um, being an, a, a hereditary yeah. or? So there are two kinds of Alzheimer's disease. There's the early onset Alzheimer's disease, which has a very strong genetic component. Uh, that form of Alzheimer's disease is more rare. So it shows up in like less than less than 10% of Alzheimer's disease patients have the early onset form. It shows up around the age of 45, 50, uh, whereas the way more common form is the late onset form, which shows up around the age of 65 and later. And that one has much less of a genetic component. The, the biggest risk factor for that form of genetic, that form of Alzheimer's disease, which again is the one that we, all of us are thinking about when we think of Alzheimer's disease, is the late onset form. That one, uh, there's a gene called Apo, uh, apolipoprotein epsilon four, and that is a risk factor. So for someone who has two copies of ApoE four, they have, I believe, uh, a tenfold. I forget; it's been a while, but ten to twentyfold higher risk of Alzheimer's than someone that has ApoE3 or ApoE2. So that's the big one. And there are a few other ones such as TREM2, uh, et cetera, but uh, too long, didn't listen. Uh, the, basically the what mm -hmm. the genetic story here is, is that if you have the late onset form, which is a more common form, the genetic component is way, way less. Uh, and and you know people ask me, my, my mom had Alzheimer's disease, should I be worrying? If she had the late onset form, probably not. Hmm. Well, that's good news because I had several people asking about that. Um, oh, this is a fun one. Um, oh, this is. I'll, uh, I'll be the judge of that, Shane. This is this is uh, Jared with Lost Sailor Leather who who makes a bunch of merch for me. If you nice. if anyone wants a here we are keychain or belt or wallet, you can use the offer code here we are to get a 20% discount on a site or anything well else he has. Um, I, I, <laughs> I used to smoke cannabis out of a, out of tin foil <laughs> to dispose quickly. <laughs> Will this affect me later on? <laughs> so that's so that's who makes my <laughs> that's who makes my leather work, everybody. Jared, uh, uh, I will tell you that smoking out of tin foil will make you a tremendous leather worker if that's what you. Uh, there, I I do you know I do remember this when I was an I I don't I don't really um I'm not averse to smoking weed I just yeah. don't care um but I remember um I I remember uh in high school when we were like fashioning our own that that was all of the thing is like oh you're not supposed to smoke it out of tinfoil that's that's what could cause that's bad news and then if you do like use i forget which side you were supposed to use if it was like the non-shiny side or something <laughs> like that there was a lot of there was a lot of like high school like uh kind of armchair <laughs> science going, going Oh, yeah. Going I, I have out. it all figured out. You know you know what's really safe? Use the other side. Then, then you're all good. Use the other side. <laughs> so, have you uh, ever heard this? 
I've heard I've heard of uh, don't smoke tinfoil. I mean, I mean, certainly there's things that are bad to smoke out of. And I, I definitely recommend any of my uh, any of my weed smokers out there to maybe just get a standard glass pipe. I, I would put a little more stock. Can you believe this is the conversation that we're having? It's right such now? a great question, though. It it's is. such a great question because I'll tell you why it's a great question. Because one of the hypotheses coming back to this chart is you're kidding uh, me hang on i'll show you heavy can you see this heavy metals heavy metals yep did he metals. nail it so did jared uh, so crack so there was the crack there, the case <laughs> jared with his aluminum foil doobie <laughs> cracked the case uh so so there's evidence that that uh in the that collection and strong evidence by the way collection of heavy metals such as aluminum and lead in your brain is neurotoxic okay this is there's strong mm. evidence for that that we've known for many Wait, years how are they getting in there if you're not smoking them what's so happening that, so for example uh one of one of the things that people are following as we speak is the impact of lead so we've obviously all heard about what happened in michigan right in flint michigan with the lead bleaching out of the pipes that's poisoning so many children yeah so yes. so you can get exposure to heavy metals via environmental toxins uh you know so so the, the 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 indirect answer to jared's question is that there's evidence suggesting uh that heavy metal in your brain is neurotoxic that it can lead to some some uh, dementia however in terms of smoking an aluminum joint i genuinely don't know the answer to that and I wish uh, Jared would fund a study because I'd be very curious to, to, to <laughs> He'll to participate find out. in it anyway. <laughs> he'll, be, uh, uh, he'll be patient zero, yeah. Uh, uh, but there's some some truth behind uh, his question. You know, I do because I because I have such a I have such a psychedelic audience, and so you know, I have to be honest. I'm gonna be straight up with my fans. Sometimes I sometimes I roll my eyes when my when. At, uh, when my own audience wants to make everything about like mushrooms or whatever, I but I actually think that this is like a pretty valid. So people are wondering if there's like anything that psychedelics might might have some interaction with Alzheimer's or whatever. What what I would if I wasn't talking if I, if if someone asked me this and I was forced to just wildly speculate, I would cautiously say that that I would bet money on psychedelics leading to an increase of neuroplasticity and an increase in neuroplasticity potentially uh, helping a little bit Al Alzheimer's. It, not, not that it would be better for you than, say, jogging or improving diet or anything else but it could potentially have some the thing is is you're doing you're doing psychedelics like you know maybe eating mushrooms like three times a year or something like that so how much of an impact could it really have compared to like getting cardio four right. times a week or whatever but um but is there are you familiar with anything with like any of the or people are asking about cbd right so there's there are CBD, the receptors in the brain in, in some of the area, sorry, there are CBD receptors, cannabinoid receptors specifically, CB1, CB2 receptors in parts of the brain that are affected by Alzheimer's disease. But there, uh, there was a clinical trial that looked at 
uh, not a clinical trial, but a, a human study that looked at usage of CBD correlated with Alzheimer's outcomes, and there was no correlation. In terms of psilocybins, uh, I haven't looked at, at that part of the literature, uh, so I, I genuinely don't know uh, whether psilocybins have a uh, protective effect in any way. And my guess is that it's just, and you know, we again, we talked about this the first time I recorded with you. That part of the literature is just so criminally underfunded and, right. and underexplored that for most of those questions, uh, the answer just remains very unclear. I mean, I will say that my psychedelic fans are really intelligent people that are interested in learning about science, which I think seems to be. Although now I have to argue with a bunch of because they're also into conspiracies, too. So yeah. it makes you open mind, sometimes a little too open. Sometimes you peek behind the wrong veil. You need to put the <laughs> veil back, take a look behind veil number two. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, but, I, I always say that, uh, <laughs> that, that there are dots everywhere, right? The challenge is to yeah. connect the right dots. That's yes. the challenge. Yeah. yeah. Here's an interesting one. Someone's saying something about some sort of Neuralink type technology that I maybe Elon Musk has been talking about. Have you? E Elon's really started kind of jumping the shark of late a little bit, huh? Um, I don't know. I don't you know if you saw you, my you reaction when on that. I don't know when I don't know if you saw my reaction when you said Elon Musk, but I think that gave away what I feel about that. Uh, yeah, I I don't know if he's having a uh I mean my my um my apologies if this is just a part of a manic episode which i myself have had but i i don't know if he's if he was always this way or what's happened to him but uh anyway um all right well that's that's all the questions from fans that look like there was there was uh, kind of people were just wondering what is the most current, like cutting edge thing that you're the most excited about? So there's some work that's looking at activation of brain regions using these transmagnetic, um, you know, basically big, big old magnets, right? And mm -hmm. they're, they're helping activate brain regions that weren't functioning as well. And it's, I, I can't say with confidence that it's going to work for Alzheimer's, but it has, it does seem to work in some, so, my my grandmother, who just recently passed away, had Parkinson's for for uh, two thousand four, so almost fifteen years before she passed. Um, and you know that was something that was not a thing when she started uh, with her with her uh, uh, Parkinson's onset. And by the time she passed away, it the field came along a lot to the point that it's being tried in many clinics across the world. The data wow. is yeah, the data is still unclear. Uh, as to its efficacy, but I think that's, if you would ask me what I'm most excited about, I don't really buy into most of the, so in terms of therapies, there's been mm -hmm. one therapy for Alzheimer's that has worked. And that came in 1996, it's called Mimantine. It doesn't even, its efficacy is towards these specific kinds of neurons in our, in our brain. Since then, pretty much every clinical trial has failed. Lilly, Pfizer, Merck, everyone has tried many different techniques and nothing seems to be working uh we've got as far as phase three and failed at phase three so i i'm more and more inclined to looking at uh methodologies that I, that weren't 
taken seriously uh, um, five, ten years ago. Well, it's interesting that you use that as an example because those um, transcranial stimulations, that that is often very closely like within the same ballpark and associate and um, brought into the same conversation as, as psychedelics, mm-hmm. uh, which seem to kind of do some of the same um, th- like reports of the same experiences and seem to be doing a lot of the same things in the brain. Um, anyhow, just uh, uh, that's that's pretty speculative. I won't put that on you. <laughs> but I I will say regarding the studies that have failed so far, yeah. Uh, if if you're, are these studies on people that have Alzheimer's already? Because it seems like if if you're already if your guys already gave up and it's and it's too late, that seems like you're studying a different thing than something that could be early onset or preventative? Great question. And people who, so pulling the curtain back a little bit, there, there are people in the field who believe that we're just looking at the wrong thing. That we don't be, they, they say that the trash is not the problem, that we're looking at the symptom. What we need to be looking at is happening way before that. So how much food are these guys making in the house? How much plastic are they going through in this, you know, inside their house? That's the problem. It's not the trash, that it's just, the trash is just the symptom, and we need to address the house in order to deal with the disease. So that's the, what they're saying. Um, what they would argue is exactly what you said, which is that the problem is we are looking at, we're trying to try to treat a disease that is not treatable. They're saying that once the neurons are gone, they're gone. You're never going to be able to stop this from happening. So we need to catch it way, way earlier. And, uh, oh, that was a question you had asked a long time ago that I didn't answer, which is when does it start? And there's evidence that the, the, the stuff that's building up starts to build up in your 30s and 40s, uh, in, in your CSF, in your brain. So it's a long-term issue. And if we catch it early enough, maybe we can treat it. But again, speculation. Are we, are we, are we going to get to a point where we start treating 40-year-olds with drug X and then follow them longitudinally till they're 70, 75, 80 to find out if they have the disease? It's going to be a difficult to get funding for that research. And how, I mean, how are you knowing that they were going to be not dis- going to get predisposed it anyway. to it in exactly. the fir- first place? That's uh, yeah. it, well. What about is there going to be? Do you do you see things in the on the horizon in terms of I don't know improved MRIs or any any kind of new even as you're talking about the animal models and stuff, I was. Uh, just in terms of AI, are we going to get better at modeling, um, just just creating algorithms or whatever of how different genes interact, so that we can just test things in a in a virtual space before um, uh, before trying them on animals and then human trials. So for the last decade, there's been this project called the Human uh, Brain. Shit, I forgot the name. Human Brain something. <laughs> The idea yeah. was that you were going to map the human brain, but not just the regions, but down to the specific neuron level. Uh, and there was millions of dollars of funding awarded to it, and it was a complete failure <laughs> at this point. Complete failure. And uh, yeah. don't let anyone tell you otherwise. And, you know, it's the complexity of the human brain. There, there's a there's a emergent property to the brain inter- to neuronal interaction that we just at this moment cannot model in any AI or computer algorithm. 
Will we get it's there weird someday? that our brain's so complex that we're too we dumb to understand to the out. complexity of our brain. Like, it's just... yeah, it, again, it's a weird feed forward. <laughs> In this yeah. case, it's a spiral of of uh, of yeah. self reflection. Um, I don't know. Uh, so to answer your question, I think eventually we need to get there if we are ever going to get to treating this disease. And this disease is only going to become more and more prevalent as we keep people aging uh, alive longer, which is what we've done successfully with the advent of antibiotics and and uh, other therapies, etc. So, you know, we, we believe that one in six individuals by the time we're in 2050, because we'll have enough of an aged population, one in six individuals will have Alzheimer's by the time you know, when we are in, uh, in 2050. Uh, if, of course, we survive until 2050, which is a different conversation <laughs> for a different conversation for a different we'll depressing get episode. There. <laughs> so, Look at uh, the complexity of our minds. <laughs> we'll figure it out. Um, what, what about what are what are some of the and, and we're wrapping up in a minute. But what oh, what okay. are what are some of the um, more subtle? I I don't want to create a bunch of hypochondriacs and I don't want to panic. But but what what are what are some of the more subtle early signs uh, symptoms of Alzheimer's? And so, what do they maybe get confused with sometimes? Right. So so memory loss is is the biggest one. That's the most salient symptom of alzheimer's disease the generally we call it you know a symptom of dementia which is a catch-all term for cognitive decline so you're having you know you're having pro a difficulty processing some words you're forgetting concepts those are all symptoms and i think really what you're uh what do they can get confused with they often get confused with normal aging as well as different kinds of dementia so my other grandmother for example who's still with us was uh, diagnosed with Alzheimer's when she actually had Parkinson. So, you know, there's always some overlap uh, of these diseases. And uh, unless you have a trained neurologist, they can get conflated sometimes. But I think what you're really asking, and I think your audience probably wants me to talk about, uh, I assume, is what can we do to, what do we think we can do to prevent the onset of Alzheimer's, right? Um, and there's some things that that are evidence-based and some things that are conjectural. So I'll stick to the uh, evidence-based ones. Exercise is really important, but not just for your body, but also your brain. So to challenge your brain in different ways to, is very important. So, you know, Sudoku and, uh, and like learning a new musical instrument uh, is better than watching a documentary on TV. And the reason for that is that when you learn something new, different parts of your brain are forced to work together and you're firing those neurons collectively. Whereas when you're watching TV, even if the documentary is really good and informative, only certain parts of your brain are going to fire just because of the, the what's the word here? Um, you know, the, the separation of, of the medium and yourself, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, challenging your brain constantly, especially when you're older, chess, Sudoku, um, learning musical instruments, learning a sport, all of those things are, are seemingly protective in the way of what we call building cognitive reserve, which is just saying, you know, you're, you're forcing your brain to work and forcing your brain to, to build muscle almost. Okay, that's one. Diet, uh, we talked about there's some evidence suggesting that a healthier, less fatty based diet is, is protective against Alzheimer's. Not, not, uh, this is not evidence that I would say is conclusive, 
but there's enough evidence and and in general it's just better for you to eat better right so i think it's good to go with that then we get into the the realm of uh certain things that have questionable questionable evidence and i'll leave i'll, I'll include one just because it's my own bias so don't in, don't think that this is uh, this is uh conclusive evidence but my own bias my what i do in my life which is consumption of uh, omega-3 fatty acids through seafood so there was evidence uh, uh there's a thing in omega-3 fatty acids called dha which is linked with better protect uh, better outcomes in alzheimer's not conclusively but there's some evidence and again it's good for you so i try to eat less uh steak and more salmon so mm. those are the things that i i would say mm. amazing and listen and listen to here here we are learn learn new things rather than exactly. uh, because it's that's that's also um part of the neuroplasticity is learning new things not just recalling old things that you've already well learned good. right so um well where can people find you on on twitter uh you can find me at nipun chopra 7 that's n-i-p-u-n-c-h-o-p-r-a-7 uh and uh really appreciate you having me on man it's, all, it's yeah. always good to the, see it, you the the beard looks fantastic Oh, and thanks. I'm jealous because like when I grow mine, as my fiance points out, it's like, like, like just pokey and, and uncomfortable. So uh, yeah. that looks glorious. <laughs> um, is there anywhere else that you want me, anything else you want to plug for people to check out of yours? No, no. Uh, my, uh, if you're interested in soccer, you can check out my soccer site called Sock Takes. Very, very cleverly named. Socktakes.com. Um, and Love it. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, me too. Uh, All right. No. Well, thank you, Nipon. Chopra? Uh, Chopra. Yeah, nailed Sh it. All right, Chopra. nailed it. Chopra. Yeah, oh, yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> sorry, I, I always forget. <laughs> it's like Oprah, Chopra. Uh, exactly. We've done this three times now. The fourth time, I promise you I'm going to... Why did I just say promise? That just jinxed everything. But I'm, <laughs> I am going to nail it. I appreciate you as a guest and as a Twitter uh, user. Um, and I can't wait to follow you more. So I'll see you on Twitter. Thanks, Shane. Keep doing what you're doing. It's incredibly important. <laughs> thank you so much. And thank you, listeners, for being such wonderful, curious people. We'll talk to you next episode.